0: Definitely a, uh, a challenging week for many of us. Um, many things that are going on, trials in the world and trials in our own families. And um, it is definitely being your shepherd and being your pastor—not your main shepherd, but your under, the under shepherd of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, for you. I—it's amazing to me how I, one moment I can rejoice with one phone call, and then cry in the next one, (laughs) and that is just the reality of living in this world, isn't it? see lots of hurting people, and at the same time, I know there's several women in the room that are uh, expecting children and the joy of that, Uh, so there's just amazing trials and yet blessings that are happening at the same time, I count it a privilege to be your Your pastor, I pray that I point you to Christ and make much of Him today. So, what theological terms and word pictures best explain what it means to be a child of God? What terms, what word pictures, what metaphors are the best ones for us to understand what it means to be a child of God? For the first ten weeks of our series, we focused on how Paul, the Apostle Paul, has explained what it means to be a child of God. He used, we used five passages specifically that Paul mentioned adoption and our new relationship as sons and daughters of God. We saw in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, that we are predestined to adoption as redeemed sons and heirs of Christ. And then we saw in Romans 8:12 to 17 that we are adopted children being sanctified or set apart by God by the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And then in Romans 8:18 8, to 30 we saw that we are children who live with hope in our final adoption, the glorification, when God takes us to be with him and we are Finally adopted, and we are glorified. And then in Romans 9, 1 to 12, we saw that national Israel is considered adopted children of God, but not all Israel is Israel. And we trust the Lord with whom He will choose and whom He will not, and then who He chose and who He did not choose. And then in Galatians chapter 4, last week, we saw that we are all adopted as sons and daughters of God who are no longer under the slavery of the law because we've been declared right and we're free from the slavery of bondage of the law. Instead, Christ has done what we couldn't do. And we all worship Jesus because we're adopted and in God's family because of His work. So to summarize, Paul explanation of our status as children of God, I want you to look at this diagram. Now, I'm doing something a little different than I've ever done before. I don't know if I've ever done a diagram, but I've been thinking on this for a long, long time, and I think it'll help to clarify a little bit what it means to be a child of God. We see this throughout the New Covenant, right? The New Covenant language talks about being children of God, and Paul focuses on some key terms and key concepts. But in other places, the Apostle John and the author of Hebrews and the Apostle Peter uses different terminology. So I'm going to focus on two today. These term, this terminology and the focus of each of the authors kind of gives us a picture of what it means to be children of God. For example, Paul explains adoption. He uses that term adoption. And it literally means to be taken as sons. Uh, It's two words compounded together to be taken as sons or to be adopted. And John, however, never uses that idea or term adoption. The Apostle Paul also talks about positional uh, adoption and and positionally being children of God. That you are declared a child of God. That you're positionally his child. And then he also talks about redemption. Redemption. And throughout the whole thing, he talks about how, in, in two passages specifically, that we are redeemed. and then he, Or actually three. Remember in Ephesians 1, Romans 8, and then also in Galatians. He talks about this idea of being freed or, or set free from bondage to be made his children. And then finally, also he says that we are children of God. And he uses that, a, a different Greek word, uh, technon. Which implies that we are children of, the, of God Almighty. And he, he talks about the Spirit's indwelling presence to describe us being children of God. Remember, the Spirit works in us and we cry out what? Abba, Father, right? And then he talks extensively about our inheritance. That we are heirs according to promise. That we are heirs with Christ, Right? That we're not only adopted as sons, but we're adopted as heirs with Christ. So these are the terms that Paul uses and focuses on. He also mentions that idea that we are sons of God. Sons, he doesn't specifically say daughters of God, but it's obviously implied. Sons and daughters of God. This is the terminology that he's used in his passages. But John uses different terms, different words. He talks about regeneration. Regeneration. Now, what's the term regeneration mean? How many of you have heard the idea, born again, right? Regeneration is the act of God regenerating us. Giving us new hearts that we are born again. So, John talks about regeneration. And he emphasizes that children of God have a new relationship. So Paul focuses more on positional, while John focuses more on the relationship between God and his children. And I know by now you're probably already asking some questions. Didn't Paul do that too? We'll talk about that as we go along. And you know what's really interesting? John never uses the term sons of God. Never. Not one time. In all of his writings, he never calls us sons of God. Why not? Well, if you look at the Gospel of John, who's he talking about mostly in the Gospel of John? Jesus, who is the Son of God. And it appears that he stays away from that concept because he wants to make the emphasis, who's the Son of God? Jesus, making sure not to mix up those two concepts. And he talks about eternal life. And what is eternal life? Anybody know John 17. That we know God and the Son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And His Son that he has sent, right? Understanding him, experientially having a relationship with him. An intimate relationship with him. So John emphasizes these things. And he focuses on believing, trusting, depending, abiding. That's what the relationship as children of God is all about. Now, obviously, when you look at these things... We might say, well, these, these kind of bleed. They kind of lean over onto each other. But you know, you'd be amazed. I've read so many books, and people try to make this clear distinction. Paul talks about being child of, a child of God this way, and John talks about it this way, and the two never meet. And I disagree. I think when we've looked at our passages, haven't we seen that they kind of overlap? And that sometimes... What John says is very similar to what Paul says, because we don't have to, we don't need to try to put things in a perfect box. God's trying to describe through all these different authors what our relationship with God looks like as children. So, for example, are we? Here's a question for you: Are we spiritually adopted by God presently? And the answer is yes and no. We'll see what we're waiting on our final adoption, but we're adopted, right? What's he doing? Well, Paul's trying to use these metaphors to make a point. He's trying to describe this relationship. And so the relation the the metaphors don't always fit perfect, do they? They kind of he stretches them. Are you adopted? Yes. Are you adopted? No. <laughs> Not yet. And he's making these points and stretching these things just to give you a better picture of your relationship. So each context, each passage helps you to understand better your relationship with God. The same thing is, does Paul only talk about positional? There's almost a a whole book I've read that talks almost exclusively about our positional standing as adopted children. And that means it's talking nothing about your relationship with God. That term, adoption, only means that you signed a paper, God legally made you his child, and it has nothing else. That's all it's saying. I disagree. I think that adoption implies relationship at times, doesn't it? And it kind of spreads over onto it. So does Paul limit it to just positional and legal? I don't think so. I think it's both. But one guy might emphasize one point more than the other. So when we get to a passage is written by the Apostle John or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle, or, or the Apostle, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, we see these writers don't use the word "adoption" because they're emphasizing other ideas and other concepts, but all of these ideas are similar. So how would I do it? This is how I would do it. This is how I would graph it. If you look real closely, what do you see? Well, you see that. Let's see. I'm supposed to have this little light. There we go. All right. You see that before, I showed two different spheres and how it worked. But I think the Bible really clearly shows it more like this that they kind of, they kind of merge together. And there's parts in the middle that are emphasized by both si- authors. That is, our identity is emphasized by who? Both authors. And that the Spirit's indwelling presence as a part of being a child of God is emphasized in both. all right, Or children of God. And then you notice here, I have some that are on the line. (laughs) And the point behind that is, is that maybe it's more emphasized by John over here. This whole idea of relational. But it still goes a little bit over into how Paul speaks. So these things don't fit perfectly in this nice clear box. Does that make sense? But it gives you an idea of what being a child of God is all about. It's about being adopted as sons of God, redeemed positionally and in inheritance. But we also have a new identity. that spirit. We are spirit and dwelt and we cry out, Abba, Father. And we're children of God. And all of this is who we are as children of God. And all these concepts are important for us to understand in order for us to do what? Walk in obedience to our Father. We need to know who He is and what our identity is in order for us to walk with Him. I think this is a good picture, and it explains who we are. Now, today we're going to focus more on John, however. For the next two weeks, we're going to put our attention into what he says about being a child of God. And we'll see these are the key elements As we go over it. So you might be asking yourself. Well why am I giving you all these technical details? Uh, Some say. Why are you always preaching doctrine? Why are you using these theological concepts. And spending so much time unpacking these, these theological concepts. Well beloved. Because I think you need it. To completely understand who you are in Christ. So that you will walk with him. And you will enjoy the relationship privileges. Look, when we take Samuel home, he's not going to have any clue what it means to have a daddy. And so he's not even going to think, oh, having a daddy means I can curl up in his lap at any moment, even if he's studying, and come to him and say, hey, I want some time with you, daddy. And daddy will say, yes, he's not going to know that that's part of his relationship. The only way he's going to learn that is by what? Me being intentional to show him what kind of relationship. So what does God do with his word? He gives us his word so you can know what your relationship with him is all about. You want to have a thriving relationship with God? You want to look like a child of God? You need to know your relationship. Know what God has for you. And all of these things... Help us to develop and understand better who Christ is, what he's done for us, who we are in him, and the power of God towards us who believe and who are his children. We need to know clearly just who we are and what this new relationship is. So, what we do, what we'll see today, is what we do with Jesus Christ ultimately reveals whether we are children of God. What we do with Christ determines whether we are children of God or children of the devil. We'll answer three questions that will reveal whether we are children of God or children of the devil. These three questions are a beautiful, clear explanation of whether or not you're really a child of God. And at the same time, I would say that these three questions are questions that you ought to consider asking your lost loved ones and friends. I had a discussion with uh, somebody I love dearly, a relative of mine, that I believe is a believer in Christ, loves Christ. But they have several friends that aren't believers in Jesus. And they said, I, I, I challenged this person the other day. I said, hey, have you talked to them about who Jesus is? Well, I know they know, the person told me. I know they know who Jesus is. I said, okay, so... Have you challenged them? Does does he really make a difference in their life? Does their faith really reveal that they believe in him? Well, you know I can't do that. I'm just trying to live it in front of them. I started grieving at that moment. And I looked at my relative. I love this person dearly. And I, I, I love the people that she's talking about. And I said... But do you understand knowing facts about Jesus is not going to help that person in in heaven or hell. That's not going to help them in hell, rather. They're not going to get to heaven by just knowing facts about him. They need to know and enjoy him. They must have a relationship with him. They must be born again. And that only happens by proclaiming the truth to these people. Sharing Christ with them. And, and the person was thankfully convicted, and, hey, I need to, I need to step up. Beloved, can, you, can, I just, can I encourage you with something? Don't be afraid to tell your friends and your neighbors and your family members the truth. You've got to challenge them to really evaluate their relationship with God. And I know some of y'all come up to me and you ask me this all the time. How much do I challenge them? Well, I can tell you this. At least challenge them some. Because I would venture to say that many of our relatives know Jesus, know about him, but they don't know him in a saving way. Beloved, the only way they're going to come to a saving knowledge of him is if you proclaim him to them. Sharing Him. So this should be a challenge for all of us to evaluate. Are we really sharing the truth with people? And second, if we know this truth, does it show itself in our lives? And I'm not talking just being a good person. I'm talking about He's your primary focus of your life. He's the one you exalt. He's the one you live for. That's what a saving relationship with God is all about. That's what we see in the Gospel of John. So, let's look at these three questions. Who is Jesus? How should we respond to Him? And why some, but not all, receive Him? Why some, but not all, receive Him? For some in here, this message will be a call for you to truly embrace Christ, to turn from your sin and trust Him. And for others who are already Christians, This message should give you a better understanding of your relationship and your identity as a child of God. Let's start with who is Jesus. We see this in verses 9 and 10, don't we? Let's read it again. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. In this passage we see Jesus was the genuine revelation of God. The true light. To the world. He was the one that showed off the glory of God and made it revealed to the world. Jesus came into the world. He existed previously, right? Why? Because He was God. He's always been God. He remained God when He took on flesh, but He came into the world. He made the world, yet He came into the world. This is an astounding truth, isn't it? The creator of it all came into the world, took on flesh, became a man. He came into the world, but the vast majority of the world, what? Didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't realize it. And the scary thing is, beloved, the vast majority of the world still doesn't get it, right? Seven billion people. And many, 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 many people, most of the people know Jesus came into the world, but they don't get it, do they? You ask me, why is our culture so horrible? Why is there so much pain and bitterness and ugliness that you see on the news all the time, right? You ask me why that's true? Answer, because they don't know Jesus. That's the answer. They've got to know Christ. It's the only way people will treat people right. Beloved, that's our message, right? It's Jesus Christ. We exalt Him everywhere and to everyone we can possibly do because He's the true light who came into the world. He's the revelation of God. These first 18 verses of the Gospel of John are are a summary of the entire book of John. You ask me, what, why, what book would you take a new believer through? Or what book would you take a, a, a believer or, or somebody that's not yet a believer and you, they want to be a believer? I'd take them through John. I'd go chapter by chapter all the way through the book. And I'd talk about who Jesus is. And I'd pound it every time I talked to him. What'd you think? Who's Jesus in chapter 1? Who's Jesus in chapter 2? You get through all, all of John and guess what's going to happen? You'll know exactly who Jesus is. But this book is all summarized in verse in the first 18 verses. And I don't have time to show you this, but there's a special, but it's written in a special Jewish linguistic device. It's chiasm. And verses 9 through 10 are actually parallel with verse 14. Look over at verse 14. They say basically the same things, they say it in different words. But they're making the same main point. Verse 14 says what? It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that that's another way of basically saying the true light which comes into the world. Jesus, the Word. What is that? That's the title for Jesus based on the context. It was introduced in 1 through 3. So in verse 14, it states the Word became flesh. The true light came into the world. Same concept. There's a crucial play on words though here. Notice in the Word is God in verse 1. But then the Word became flesh in verse 14. And the difference is the Word is and the Word became. The Word is. Means he's always been, Jesus has always been God, but he became man, right? But there's another play on words. Look at verse 13, or 12 rather. Verse 12, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Then in verse 14 it says, the word became flesh. What's the play on words? That word become and became are the same verbs. And it's a very crucial thought. I want you to think on this. Jesus became a man so that we could become children of God. That's so crucial. He became a man. God became a man so that we could what? Become children of God. That's the point. That's the play. The Son of God became a man so that Jesus could give us the right to become the children of God. So, so who do we rejoice in? Who do we worship? Who's our life about? Why Why am I a child of God? Because He became a man. Is it because I deserved it? Is it because I earned it? Is it because I'm cute? That's definitely not true, right? He gave me the right to become a child of God because he became a man. And he gave me this right, as we'll see. So let's do a summary. Let's look. Are y'all ready to worship Christ? Let's look at him. Let's examine him. This book is. Filled with the glory of God on display. Let's talk about who Jesus is. Well, flip over to John chapter 2. I'm going to summarize the whole chapter. You ready? One section in specifics. The gospel of John gives seven main miracles. Here's one of the miracles. Jesus turned water into wine. That was his first miracle, wasn't it? Now, I'm not advocating here drinking wine. But I will tell you this. Listen to me closely. What does it take to make wine? It takes age, doesn't it? For it to be good wine, it has to be aged wine. What was in those bottles? Water. Was it aged water? (laughs) No. How does he turn water into aged wine? A good aged wine at that. Why? Because he's the creator. His first miracle screams what? He's the creator. Second, Jesus healed the royal official's son in chapter 4. In chapter 4, when he heals him, he doesn't heal him by going and putting his hands on him like the Benny Hinn guys. By the way, he's not really healing anybody. But what did he do? He healed them from a distance. He said, go, and he's healed. (laughs) And they got on the road, and they got there, got down the road, and what did they figure out? That the very time that he told them that he was healed, he was healed. What's that show? He's the healer from a distance. Which is who? God. He doesn't have to necessarily be there and touch him. shows his deity. Third, Jesus healed the paralytic. Here, he heals a guy that, to be honest, wasn't a believer, it appears. When you read it, he, he, he just turns on Jesus big time when they question him after he's healed. He doesn't stand for him. But what did Jesus do? He healed him. He showed mercy even on the what? The unbeliever. Who is that? God. Jesus is God the healer of even, and showing mercy and grace even on the unbeliever. Are we seeing that Jesus is God? Notice also in chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. What's that? He's the all-providing one. He gave to those that needed food. Who is that? God. Who is that? Jesus is God. What a good God we serve, right? What a good Savior. The God-man came to the earth. He became a man so that what? We could become children of God. It changes the way we view him. He's not just another man. He's God-man. Jesus walked on water in John chapter 6. Revealing what? His sovereignty over nature. Do you understand? Walking on water is not possible. (laughs) It only happens for who? God. You say, well, Peter did it. Why did he do it? Because Jesus was keeping him up. (laughs) The fact of the matter is, is Jesus is the God-man. He's not just another man. He's the one who came to earth. Six, Jesus healed the blind man. Remember, this was a beautiful story. This is in contrast to the healing the unbeliever, the paralytic. Here he he heals the blind man. And the blind man doesn't realize really who Jesus is, but he argues with the Pharisees. This is strange. You don't know who he is, but he was able to heal me. And he starts defending Jesus before he even fully knows him. What does that show? I think God's already working in the blind man. Not only his eyes, but his heart. And when he gets to him, he says, do you believe? And he says, tell me who he is and I'll believe. (laughs) He says, you're looking at him. (laughs) And he goes, oh, I believe and worshiped him. What did he do? What did Jesus do? He healed both his physical sight and his spiritual sight. He understood who he was and he was saved. Who does that? God does that. Who saves you? God does that. Who opens your eyes so you know who Jesus is? God does that. How did he do it? God became a man so that you could be a child of God. So you could become a child of God. What a great God, right? And then finally we see Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. These are the, the main seven miracles. And You can't look at these stories and say Jesus is just a normal guy. (laughs) Jesus should be worshipped by all humanity. We should all be worshipping him 24 7, right? Because he's the God man. He gives life to the dead. Lazarus. But you know there's other miracles. I can't go through them all but One of the ones that is not mentioned by uh, as one of the seven miracles that most of the commentators point out, these seven, is his omniscience. Throughout the Gospel of John, you see something. You see that Jesus understands people. He knows what they're thinking. He realizes it in ways that are shocking. He knows hearts. I have to admit, I completely... Cannot relate with Jesus in this one. (laughs) As I messed up last week in my sermon and called out the poor people that were walking out, I had no idea why they were leaving. I I didn't know what was going on. I get a text later that says what? They were going to work. It was just a mistake. They got up at that very time. That was when it was supposed to happen. I'm what? Not all knowing. (laughs) I can't look into your heart. Some of y'all are sitting here growling at me. Or frowning at me. And some of you are smiling at me. But I have no idea what's going on in your heart. But Jesus knows. He knows everything you're thinking right now. How do I know? Because he showed himself throughout the Gospel of John. He showed us that God knows hearts of men. He's omniscient. Jesus knew that Nathanael thought before Jesus even Met him in person in John chapter 1. Jesus knew and foretold his death before it happened in John chapter 2. John chapter 3, lift up. John chapter 8, I'm going away. John chapter 12, let her alone so that she can keep it for my burial. John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. John chapter 16, a little while and you will not see me. A little while you will see me. What is this? He knows the future before it happens. He's all-knowing. He says, and also, Jesus knew Nicodemus was unregenerate. How many of you wish you could see that sometimes? People that say, oh, I'm a believer, I'm a believer, but their life doesn't match it. And you're like, you sure? And you look at him and you say, is your heart changed? Nicodemus walks in, Pharisee of Pharisees. Look good to the outside. And he goes, what? You're dead lost. You need a heart change. You need to be born again. I want to warn you, ladies and gentlemen in the room. (laughs) I don't know who is perfectly saved. I can look at you and say, well, y'all seem like pretty nice people and you seem like you love Jesus. You keep coming back and listening to this guy. So obviously something's happening. It gives you grace. But I know who does know your heart. And if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, he knows your heart. By the way, you're only going to be able to trust him and believe in him if he makes you a child of God. And he gives you the right to become children of God. Jesus knew everything, right? It's amazing. Jesus knew that Judas was against him before he even did it. But Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die before he died. <laughs> and he knew that he was going to be raised before he was raised. Let's go to him because he's dead. What? I thought you said he wasn't. No. I knew he was going to die. <laughs> Jesus knew his hour to die and rise from the dead and be glorified. John chapter 13. Jesus knew Peter would deny him three times before he did. Is there any question in the world, you read the Gospel of John and you say, hmm, I think Jesus was just a good prophet. No. Jesus is God incarnate. And he deserves all of our worship and honor. Jesus knew all things had been accomplished at the very point that he, what? Died. And I want you all to listen closely. I'm convinced nobody took his life. He stopped living at the moment that his plan was accomplished. He said, finished, and he breathed his last. Why? Because he knew the exact moment that all the law had been fulfilled, and all of sin had been paid for, and he died because he's sovereign over his own life. I lay my life down. Any of y'all say that? I can't stop breathing when the plan's done. God does it. God determines that. Jesus is the God-man, and he deserves all of our worship. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the true light, the genuine revelation of God in flesh. Jesus is the all-knowing, all-powerful, gracious Savior who became a man so that we could become children of God. And so all children of God in the room do what? Make much of Jesus it's about him friends christianity is not about what we do it's about who we know children of god know in a saving relationship god and his son that is eternal life we know him that is our life Jesus became a man and revealed God to the world. Jesus became a man and died on a cross. Jesus became a man and rose from the dead. Why? So that his followers could become children of God. Turn with me over to John chapter 20. Now, I've alluded to this before, but I think this is so profound. It's shocking. It's a beautiful story, an amazing event. This is Jesus after he rose from the dead. Most of the disciples didn't get it. They were afraid. They were in an upper room. Mary didn't get it. One of his most devoted followers, one who had been delivered from her sin. And it says in verse 11, But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, I don't know about you, but if I saw some white angels, I, I, I'd be like, okay, I've got to get over this weeping thing. <laughs> Something's going on, right? But she's so in her grief, she can't, even, she can't even put it, wrap it together. She can't get it together in her mind. She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Yeah, the gardener, oh my. Tears probably all in her eyes. She's just totally grief-stricken. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, I bet it rang in her head. Oh, that's my name, and he knows it. And it sounds like him. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabroni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me. Implies what? She definitely jumped up and went to him and grabbed a hold. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Oh, folks, do you see it? Do you see the picture? Finished, accomplished, death, burial, resurrection, and new relationship possible with god jesus died and rose from the dead so that the father could be their father jesus died and rose from the dead so that his father the tr- part of the trinity could now be there one of the members of their of the trinity could be their spiritual father and his god in his humanity Could now be their God. In our humanity we can call him our father and our God. Why? Because he became a man. Because he became a man. Because he died. Because he rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters. See in this passage what do we see? We see that our relationship with God is based completely on Who we know. That's it. It's who we know. He's our Father. He's our God. When we know and believe in Jesus Christ, we have a new relationship with God. Please, folks, listen to me. Don't make Christianity primarily about what you do. When it is really all about who you know. Now, that doesn't mean, however, how you live doesn't matter. But I will tell you this. John spends all of this ink. All of this stuff is in Paul, too. He talks about it constantly. You will not obey God. You will not enjoy God if you don't know God. If he's not your father. If you don't have a relationship with him. And as we understand who Christ is and what he's done for us, obedience to him is not a burden, it's a joy. We want to obey him. I see this so much on Christian from Christians. We post it, we do it all the time on Facebook. It's killing me. We make Christianity about what we do. And we say things like, we say things like, well, this this person obviously is not a Christian because their life doesn't match. Well, that is a true statement. However, who are you talking to? And many times, you're talking to the world. So when the world reads a quote like that, what do they think? Christianity is about what I do. Do you understand? We're not going to make our country get better by telling them, stop doing that. We're going to get our country. Our country's going to change when we start saying, He did it. He's the one. He's perfect. I'm not. He's perfect. We make much of Christ, and it'll change the world. We make much of us, and we'll destroy the world. We'll be just like the Pharisees. We'll be just like the Pharisees. Beloved. Make much of Christ, not you. If you point out everybody else's sins, and that's all you're known for, then you've missed it. Because you said, I'm the one that can jump over that low bar that I've set for me. But it's not about us, is it? It's about Christ. And we know who he is, don't we? So let's make much of him. Now how should we respond to him? How should we respond? We see it. Verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him. What's the point? They better receive him. (laughs) Some didn't receive him. Most didn't receive him. Some did receive him. A few. Here again we see a summary of the entire gospel of John. The word receive can be misunderstood. You know, receive Jesus into your heart. You've probably heard that phrase before. Receive Jesus into your heart. By the way, that's never mentioned anywhere in the Bible. To receive Jesus into your heart. The emphasis is about faith. The idea is about believing, trusting in committing to, leaning on, depending on. That's the point of receive. Here again we see that summary. And it's all the way through the Gospel of John. Receive is not a repetitious prayer or walking an aisle or saying something after somebody else says it. That's not receiving Jesus. Receiving Jesus means to embrace Him, to trust Him, to abide in Him to enjoy him to have relationship with him to obey him that's what receiving jesus is it's further described in that in verse 12 as even to those who believe in his name what is this the noun form of believing is not just used it's not even used in the book of john the noun form only the verb form of belief is used in The book of John. It's always associated with an action word. It's very interesting. It's always associated with believing that's active. Believing in Jesus. Here in John, here John is obviously emphasizing the continuous nature of the verb to believe, to receive, to believe. And especially even to those who believe in his name. It's an ongoing aspect here. When a person receives Jesus, they become a person who is believing in Jesus. They are trusting in him and they are committed to him. The idea of a renewed relationship is established. So important. The concept of believing in Jesus is repeated 81 times in the Gospel of John. I think it's important. What do you think? Very important. I think the word belief, faith, is so misunderstood in our culture and in our society. It's scary. People don't get it. They don't understand it. In some ways, I think the Muslims, the two Muslims I talked to two weeks ago, they get belief better than we do. Evangelical, so-called professing Christians. What They understand it means what? Commitment. It's who you're committed to. They're committed. Unfortunately, committed to what? The wrong God. But they're committed to their false God. Beloved, we need to understand what believing is. So let's look at the five types of believing that are mentioned. Again, there can be believing that's not saving believing. That's found in John, in the Gospel of John. Look with me over to John chapter 8. There's five types of belief in in, in the Gospel of John. First, there's insufficient belief. Insufficient belief. You see this in John chapter 8, verse 31. Let's read. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? They believed in him, right? So they're legit. They're saved, right? Watch this. This is what Jesus said to them. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Boy, is that verse misquoted, out of context, all the time. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Only if you believe in Jesus. Only if you genuinely are a disciple of Jesus. Otherwise, what? You won't know the truth, and you won't be set free from anything. That's the implication. They answered him and said, We are Abraham's offspring, descendants, and have never been enslaved to anyone. Why do we need to be set free? Is what they're getting at, right? How is it that you say you will become free? (laughs) Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, pay attention, pay attention closely. I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. And if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. He gave the right to become children of God. Who makes us children of God? The son does. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Uh-oh, it's going to get ugly. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. You know, in some ways, that is the worst thing they could have possibly said. Right? I was talking to, again, back to our Muslim friends that we witnessing too. We said, Abraham sinned, and they went crazy. No way. He's a prophet. He never sinned. Oh, really? No, Abraham was a sinner, and all of his kids after him were what? Sinners. You know what Jacob means? Deceiver. That was his grandchildren, right? What's the point? Beloved, looks real clear. He says, he says, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father, verse 39. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Now, at this point, he's talking about what? Their spiritual, if they're saying Abraham is their spiritual father, that they're going to follow in his footsteps, what should they do? They should look like him. That is his faith that led him to what? Leave and go. They need to be born again. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. I I would love to know whether or not they were referencing Jesus' uh, birth here and questioning his birth. Verse 42 and, and who was his father? Jesus said to them, If God were your father, this is crucial, folks, you would love me. For I proceed forth from and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And the word became flesh. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Oh, beloved, listen. What does the beginning of this section say in 831? Back to it real quick. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Whoa, that should shock you because then in verse 44 he says you're what of your father the devil believers are fathers of the are, are, are their father is the devil what what is this this is called insufficient faith this is unsaving belief this is people that know about the facts about Jesus but they don't know intimately and relationally Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Very clear, isn't it? Knowing who Christ is makes a difference in how you live. Yes. Why? Because he saved us. He changed us. He made his, his children. There's also weak faith. This is interesting. In John chapter 12, it states... 1242, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogues. Man, is time gone? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Lord, you are good. Oh, wow. This is some really good stuff. I feel like I'm right in the middle. and just started. Did the clock zoom by for you, too? Unreal. This is amazing. Let me finish this one little point, and then we'll pick back up next week. We'll do some more. John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, this is weak belief. Nevertheless, many even of those rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. What's that? That's weak belief at best. They fear man. Then verse, the third one would be growing belief. Who is that? That's Nicodemus. You see this throughout the book of John, don't you? John chapter 3, what do we see? He goes to him. We know that you are from what? God. Because of the things you do. But then Jesus says, you need to be born again. Right? You must be born again. Why don't you get this? And then in chapter 7, guess who speaks up? In chapter 7, verse 51, Nicodemus does. And he's kind of defending Jesus to a degree. He says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So he almost acts like an advocate. So what does it appear that his faith might be doing? Growing. Maybe he's starting to get it a little better. Then by the end, in John chapter 19, what's he do? He's part of the ones that go and take the body of Jesus and Give a proper burial to the body, showing honor and respect to Jesus. Beloved, this is growing belief. At what point did Nicodemus become a believer and get saved? I have no idea. doesn't say it. But it does appear that it, it's a progression. All you children that are growing up in, children, uh, in, in, in Christian homes, that's for you. You might be hearing this truth and hearing this truth and knowing Jesus is who he is and hearing it and hearing it and hearing it. And as time, you're like, yeah, I think I get a little better. I'm getting a little better. I'm getting it. And then one day you're going to find you're going to, wow, I'm all in for him. You might not have that exact moment. But where you are now and what Jesus, who he is to you now is what matters. See, your Lord and Savior. And then finally, there's continuous belief. We saw that. Go back to John chapter 1. Those who are believing in his name. Again, the present tense, the idea that he is the one. He's the one. We trust in who he is and what he's done. Ultimately, all of this boils down to, though, where does faith come from? How are we children of God? Answer, simple. It's God-produced belief. How do we know this? Look at John chapter 1. We'll read verse 13 and we'll close with this. It says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Oh, folks, listen to me closely. Those who receive Jesus, those who are believing in Jesus... Those are the ones he also gave the right to become children of God. When he graciously gave us this, when he graciously made us his children, we also did what? We believed in him. This is who we are. We're believers. If you are a believer in Jesus, why are you a believer? Because he gave you the right to become a child of God. And so all of us that trust in Christ right now, who do we worship? Who do we exalt? Him. Why? Because it's not based on what, who we were born by. It, it's not based on whether we were born as a Jew or not. It doesn't matter whether or not you have a Christian parent or not. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's because of who? God. So what do we do? We worship Him and we share Him. You say, well, then that means I should just sit back and wait for God to reveal Who's a believer and who isn't? No. (laughs) Because the message that God uses to change hearts is what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is. How many of you want to change your culture? How many of you want to change this world? I want to change it. There's two ways you can change it. You can clean up the outside of the cup like the Pharisees. You can make us look like a so called Christian nation. Just being honest, you can say we're one nation under God. Now, I know some of y'all are like, oh, you're telling me take that out? Listen to me closely. You can make a country that professes that they're one nation under God. But, beloved, listen to me. Saying we're one nation under God means absolutely nothing. Nothing. If the God that we're under is not the God of the Bible. And the only way a person can be under God is by them hearing the message of Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done. That's it. We've got to speak it more. We've got to share it more. There are people dying and going to hell all the time. And it's because they're putting their faith and trust in a God that thinks that their works is what saves them. We've got to stop. Jesus is our hope, He's the one. Proclaim Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy towards us. Thank you that you would make us children of God by the amazing work of Jesus Christ. Your son who became a man and showed us your glory full of grace and truth. Thank you for giving us eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see and Spiritual ears to hear, God. We pray now that our message will be all about you. That we will exalt you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior.